a student diagnosed with autism, had been at home just with mum for that student's whole life and really didn't see why it was important to do school and to interact with other people. So we started by using the television. We would put our lessons on the television so that the child could get used to seeing the teacher and seeing the other students. That's Susan. She's explaining how a student with disability received one simple adjustment to the way they experienced learning, while at home learning by distance education. It was a step forward on their personalised education plan, which included goal setting and the right learning adjustments. You can imagine in prep you do lots of interactive activities with puppets and manipulatives and songs and dancing. And so the child started to watch this on the television and gradually they could engage with the class. This approach helped turn around the student's poor relationship with school to one that's now positive. It was a lot of adjustments, but it was about helping him to love coming to school and love learning. This is Disability Conversations, the second season of the NCCD Portal series. Hi there, I'm Sarpil Shenelmish. In this episode, we'll turn our focus on the relationship between the NCCD and distance education. You'll find out how students with disability can be supported in their learning from remote and home-based settings. And you'll discover how distance education schools can work with families to provide effective adjustments when they're not meeting with students face-to-face. inside a School of Distance Education, or SDE, setting. We provide what's called synchronous online learning. The school day starts at 8 o'clock and they're just online and we use Collaborate as our platform. But if you've used Teams or Zoom, it's a very similar kind of situation. Hi, my name's Susan Monaghan. I'm the Head of Inclusion and Student Support here at Brisbane SDE. We are an online school and my role involves supporting students who have a disability, according to the DDA. The DDA Susan is referring to here is the Disability Discrimination Act 1992, which requires students with disability to have the same access to learning as those without disability. So our model's not a paper-based system. It's all online. And the students use OneNote as their online exercise book and can be differentiated for whatever the students need. The other students can't see that theirs has more complexity or has less complexity. It's just targeted and scaffolded to their level. They can type in the chat or they can use their microphone and we can do breakout rooms for small group work like you would in any other school. And if students are struggling a little bit, they might stay with you in the room. And it's not just the academic needs that are considered in a distance education environment. The social and emotional needs of students are also catered for. 
you can imagine that some students come to us with real difficulties. So we'll have a special emoticon that a student could send to the teacher as a signal that they're not coping. We can just pop them down in a breakout room. And the great thing is that we can have their strategies on the screen for them. And that can be as diverse as pop your headphones in and play this special encouraging song for a few minutes, like your happy place song. It could be that we've got a slideshow of calming pictures or images that the student looks through in order to become regulated again. Or it could be that the student goes out and jumps on the trampoline or runs up and down the stairs to help with regulation. There's loads of stuff that we can do for the students to help them to gradually re-engage with learning. It's something that we really value and it's something that we do in partnership with teachers, teacher aides, parents and students. When it comes to distance education, there's a range of reasons why families enrol their child in an online classroom. Disability is one of those reasons. With disability students, they come in through a referral system and they're usually medical or mental health referrals that may come through schools of special educational needs. There can be private referrals through school psychs or private psychologists, psychiatrists. Hi, I'm Janine, teacher at the School of Isolated and Distance Education in Perth. We consult very heavily with the enrolled school to set the very best program we can for those children. One of my students, she's got a very severe degenerative medical condition. While she's removed from her enrolled school, she comes to us as a referred student and we're now supporting her. Because her school has very specific programs for this little girl, I'm engaged heavily with them almost as a conduit for helping pass the program she was on in her enrolled school and monitoring how she's going in her medical trial. The mother reports back to us. She sends a lot of photos. She sends a lot of anecdotal notes and keeps me updated on how things are going and where we're going to go with the program. So after consultation with the school, consultation with the parent, I set a program And then we really have to take it from there and see how the child adapts to it. Are they engaging with it? And then we will modify as needed. While students receive the same learning in distance education, there are some key differences in how they gain new knowledge, especially when it comes to teaching practices. We don't want to keep children online for too long because it's not recommended Cognitively, it can be very exhausting. And the best way they can learn is having someone with them and going through the materials. A lot of the responsibility for the day-to-day education of a child then lands with the person who's working as their home tutor, and that's generally one or both of the parents. So we have to do a lot of work with parents so that they understand what we need from them. 
if they're working in a workbook, the workbook always comes with a home tutor guide, which really gives the parents a script that we ask them to follow. We ask parents to mark the work, and then when the work comes back to us, we assess it and the families get all the feedback that a mainstream classroom teacher would be giving on a daily basis. Despite these core differences, Year 1 teacher Sophie Bailey says one thing remains the same, and that's the focus on relationships. I'm still building close relationships with students and their families as I would when teaching at a face-to-face school and use the same strategies to engage the children. It's obviously just on a different platform. I look at the student's background and then I ring the parents, have a conversation with them and if there is any documentation or clarification that I need from specific specialists that the child may see and they will have pointers. A lot of times if a child sees a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist, they will send forms to us that have some little tips on what they're doing so that I can then take that and integrate it into the way I differentiate for the child's needs within the classroom. And to ensure that the needs of each student are met, Susan Monaghan says there are some specific considerations for an online learning environment that teachers will need to factor in. In terms of the lighting, we do know that students can be very sensitive to the brightness of their screen. We actually have teacher aides who provide a service for our students where they will sit with them before school or at lunchtime or after school and go through what's needed on the computer. There's lots of different things on a computer, as you can imagine, that you can do to make settings more comfortable. We know that students with dyslexia sometimes need a sheet of perspex across their screen to help them with the colour variation, we know that adjusting the font can really help some students. And so the teacher will make sure the font is adjusted for everybody and then for the student's computer have that set up automatically. In terms of noise cancelling headphones, lots of students have that in their plan because they'll become overwhelmed with all the voices. And so what we actually do, particularly for older students, is they would pop on their noise cancelling headphones and they would read the subtitles so that they can engage with it that way or actually use the text-to-speech so that they're just listening to that voice rather than hearing a whole lot of voices in the classroom. If in the home we need manipulatives for the child because what we're doing on the screen isn't enough, we'll either send that home and the parent will print them out and cut them out and make puppets or whatever, or we'll use objects that are commonly found at home. So a lot of our science experiments typically use things that are found in the home. Schools might use counters for students to count. Now, we send that home typically for every student, but a student with autism might really like to work with cars. And so we'll just change up the activity and make the student's numeracy activity about working with cars because that student might have a 100 cars there to choose from. It's about 
just working out what the child needs and seeing if we can provide it for them. In the PD of staff, we always speak to them about the categories of adjustments from an online perspective. So we definitely make sure that we're giving them strategies that suit this context. So how does Sophie Bailey put these sorts of adjustments in place when her students are in far-flung places? In the early years, I ask that they have their camera on during the whole lesson so I can make those observations if, for example, some students on some days might be having an off day, like you'd obviously observe if you're in the classroom with them. We have connect time, it's called, which I guess in the classroom would be like your morning meeting where you talk about different things that the children are interested in and so you learn those little tips so that you can then incorporate it into your lesson to keep them engaged and using puppets and everything else in the early years always keeps them engaged, dressing up, having fun with them like you would in the classroom. I've got a student at the moment that really struggles to read emotion, ask questions. So their goal at the moment is every morning when I'm calling the role, they ask me, how are you? They say good morning, ask how I am, and then I ask them in return and they respond. So it's just that's their individualised goal. I've got a child really struggling to stay engaged in the lesson. They would run off essentially and wouldn't remain next to the screen and through consultation with the parent and trialing different things by having lots of little brain breaks has really helped this particular student that I've got. So when it comes to gauging a student's progress and engagement and determining if the adjustments put in place are effective, Sophie says frank conversations with parents are vital. I've always, as a teacher, built strong relationships with parents and had those honest conversations with parents about what I'm doing in the classroom and the reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing. So we have parent info nights at the beginning of term and sometimes we might have them multiple times throughout the term, same as in a mainstream classroom. But if I had any concerns with regards to any child, I would flag them with the differentiation team. And it's then the discussion that we have collaboratively to then decide steps forward, whether that be doing extra diagnostic testing in class or whether it's to have a conversation with the family to find out a little bit more about have they noticed this prior, have they noticed anything in social settings, depending on what my observation is. And there's a few ways that teachers can build that relationship with parents so they can work collaboratively towards meeting student needs. Susan says there's on- and off-site opportunities. We have sports days and swimming carnivals and excursions and incursions and we have what are called connect days every term where the students are invited in to do activities with the staff. 
that's a great opportunity to meet with the parents and develop a relationship face-to-face. Of course, we use the student's classroom and we can invite the parents to come into the classroom after school and so we can turn on the cameras and see each other and that really helps. We do all our parent-teacher interviews online since COVID as teachers. If there's a difficulty, you communicate that early because early intervention really is something that would help. To be in that communication with parents builds a relationship. And once you have a relationship, the parents are often much more confident to work with you. So I think the most important thing is the ongoing nature of the communication, finding a time that suits the parents to talk. So not just ringing them out of the blue, if it can be helped, actually making a time and putting that time aside so that you can have the time to develop the communication and develop the relationships. And our inclusion and student support teachers have time built into their timetable to enable that relationship to build. We as a school will bring all the stakeholders together to try and resolve any difficulties Of course, that can then go to the principal and we have principal education officers at regional office and they can also help us. We like to have it as a partnership. So it's not us against the parent. It's actually, okay, well, this is what I can do in these circumstances and the parent explaining, no, well, we think we want more. And it's very much a process where we keep talking around it to see what we can do. comes to evaluating and modifying adjustments, what are some examples of best practice? Sophie says it starts with setting student goals and having regular check-ins with parents. When we set that goal, like in a mainstream school, when you communicate what the child is learning throughout the term and at the beginning of each week, you'll give an overview of, for example, this term, we're learning about different things that we observe in each of the day sky and then the night sky. And so it's about making the parents aware of that so that then they can reinforce that learning at home. If they have any feedback, like in a mainstream school, they might email and say, when I was talking about this with so-and-so, they really struggled with such and such. It's about taking that on board and then you have a conversation with the child and make your own observations and go from there and then get back to the parent. The main thing just comes down to building the relationships with the children and the family. So there's that trust and respect and spending time getting to know the students and the families to harness their interest and making them feel valued is a massive tip for what I think is a huge advantage. If you've got trust and respect, if you're having what you might think might be a difficult conversation, it's always easier if you've built that relationship first. I say to the parents, if 
the child is having any difficulties, just send me a quick message in the chat box. And sometimes I might get a message from a particular family that says, we're having a bit of an off day. We're just going to have a quick brain break. Not being in the classroom face to face with the children, I might not know that. I can't necessarily observe that. So having that open communication and obviously in the early years, when they can't read and write competently, popping that in the chat box, I can then take that on board and then check in with them afterwards and have a chat and see how we can do something differently. While the NCCD relies on schools making evidence-based decisions about support provided for students with disability, Susan stresses that when making those decisions, consultation is crucial. She recalls the case of a Year 10 student who was initially identified as a candidate for senior secondary schooling qualification. We were confident based on his work at school that he would be able to engage with a QCE pathway, which is a Queensland Certificate of Education pathway. So we were encouraging the family to select subjects at that level. The mother felt that the student wouldn't be able to engage at that level because of his anxiety. I then had some stakeholder meetings with the psychiatrist. We then worked out, well, this child is very anxious and trying to get him to work at his potential, that could actually have dire consequences for his mental health. And so it was very much a partnership between the psychiatrist and the school and the parent to work out not just what the student could do, but what would be best for the student's mental health in the long term. So how can teachers go about assuring that adjustments are effective and working towards expected curriculum achievement standards? Here's how Sophie Bailey approaches it. So we look at the achievement standard and what's needed for their level based on all specialist reports and everything else. There's a student in my class that is on a highly individualised curriculum plan. It's about working out what is this student working towards, what do I need to do? So for this particular student, they are nonverbal. So for example, last term when we were doing shape, one of the criteria was engaging with objects and observing how that child interacts with the objects, feeling the different corners and just showing facial expressions, gestures. So for that particular child, it's just a check list. With other students, it might be like when I'm in the classroom, letter sound assessments, sight word assessments, reading, listening, and then you have the summative assessments that are what goes towards their report card. When you think about a typical school day, students can have multiple teachers that they meet. 
And given that the NCCD relies on consistency of teacher judgments, how do distance education schools ensure this? Susan Monaghan. In a school this size, students can have six teachers throughout their week to make sure that we get all the information from all those teachers, as well as the guidance officers, as well as the case managers, the differentiation teachers, that's a lot of information to collect. So we actually use an Excel spreadsheet and we use the VLOOKUP function based on their student ID and we collate all the information about that student in an enormous spreadsheet so that we can moderate that information and make a on-balanced judgment about the level of support the student's getting. You can imagine a child with autism might really love to be in HPE, for example, but not enjoy in the slightest geography and becomes disengaged. So it could be that the geography teacher and their differentiation teacher are just absolutely providing loads of adjustments in that class, whereas in HPE, they don't need any adjustments because they love it and they want to interact. And that's absolutely okay, but it is our job to moderate and to just have those conversations. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. The Disability Standards for Education 2005, also known as The Standards, outline how schools should support students with disability. So how do distance education schools ensure they're meeting their obligations under the standards? Susan says there are signs school teams can look out for if learning is being impacted by disability in a distance education setting. We would look at what behaviour concerns are and if we can find out what the trigger is for that behaviour. We might use outside agencies to have them have a look at the kind of things that are happening if we can't work it out ourselves. We're working with psychiatrists and psychologists to try and get the best information about the child. Within the school, we have guidance officers and speech therapists and we can call upon the autism centre or visiting advisory teachers to help us if we've got difficulties that we just can't nut out ourselves. But very much at the beginning, it's about getting to know the student and getting to know what it is that's happening. And the good thing is that our lessons are recorded. So we can actually go back in the lesson and replay many times what's happened to see if we can work out a pattern. Once we've got some ideas, we then, of course, would talk to the parents because the parents know the child really well. And we would always want to engage the parent in planning for the needs of the student. And if the student is able, we, of course, would talk to the student about their needs. And in fact, in the older grades, that's where we start. We would have one of our inclusion and student support teachers chat to the student. We've got a number of questions in a document that they can use to help them to really find out about the student. And then we look at what classroom adjustments are needed to help this student to actually engage with learning. So students perhaps who have a cochlear implant and had great difficulty with the noise at a face-to-face school, 
they can connect their cochlear implant straight to their microphone in their computer and a lot of that residual noise is not a problem anymore. We can also use on the screen the subtitles so that they can see what the teacher has written on the bottom like you would with your TV. We can impute disability. So if we're pretty sure that the child is having attention difficulties, we can start the process of adjusting for that child without a formal diagnosis. Once we've identified a student as needing adjustments, we start a personalised learning plan for that student. And here we call them ILPs, Individual Learning Plan. So we start that process. So if there's a need, we adjust. You've been listening to Disability Conversations, the second season of the NCCD Portal series. Disability Conversations was produced by Written and Recorded. This is an Education Services Australia podcast. And I'm Sarpil Shenalmish. To hear more, search for Disability Conversations on the NCCD portal or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is supported by the Australian Government Department of Education for the nationally consistent collection of data on school students with disability or NCCD portal. Copyright 2022 Education Services Australia Limited unless otherwise indicated. Licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 unless otherwise indicated.